Section 15 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Compiled by Brander Matthews This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 15 Cut off Copples's by Clarence King One October day, as Kawea and I travelled by ourselves over a lonely foothill trail, I came to consider myself the friend of woodpeckers. With rather more reserve as regards the blue jay, let me admit great interest in his worldly wisdom. As an instance of cooperative living, the partnership of these two birds is rather more hopeful than most mundane experiments. For many autumn and winter months such food as their dainty taste chooses is so rare throughout the Sierras that in default of any climatic temptation to migrate the birds get in harvests with annual regularity and surprising labor oak and pine mingle in open growth acorns from the one are their grain the soft pine bark is granary and this the process armies of woodpeckers drill small round holes in the bark of standing pine trees sometimes perforating it thickly up to twenty or thirty or even forty feet above the ground then about equal number of woodpeckers and jays gather acorns rejecting always the little cup and insert the gland tightly in the pine bark with its tender base outwards and exposed to the air a woodpecker having drilled a hole has its exact measure in mind and after examining a number of acorns makes his selection and never fails of a perfect fit not so the jolly careless jay who picks up any sound acorn he finds and if it is too large for a hole drops it in the most off-hand way as if it were an affair of no consequence utters one of his dry chuckling squawks and either tries another or loafs about lazily watching the hard-working woodpeckers thus they live amicably harvesting and with this sequel those acorns in which grubs form become the sole property of woodpeckers while all sound ones fall to the jays ordinarily chances are in favor of woodpeckers and when there are absolutely no sound nuts the jays sell short so to speak and go over to nevada and speculate in juniper berries the monotony of hill and glade failing to interest me and in default of other diversion i all day long watch the birds recalling how many gay and successful jays i knew who lived as these on the wit and industry of less ostentatious woodpeckers thinking too what naively dogmatic and richly worded political economy mr ruskin would phrase from my feathered friends thus i came to ruskin wishing i might see the work of his idol and after that longing for some equal artist who would arise and choose to paint our sierras as they are with all their color glory power of innumerable pine and countless pinnacle gloom of tempest or splendor where rushing light shatters itself upon granite crag or burns in dying rose 
upon far fields of snow. Had I rubbed Aladdin's lamp? A turn in the trail brought suddenly into view a man who sat under shadow of oaks, painting upon a large canvas. As I approached, the artist turned half round upon his stool, rested his palette and brushes upon one knee, and in familiar tone said, "'Darn if you ain't just naturally catched me at it. Get off and sit down. You ain't going for no doctor, I know.' My artist was of short, good-natured, butcher-boy makeup, dressed in what had formerly been black broadcloth, with an enlivening show of red flannel shirt about the throat, wrists, and a considerable display of the same where his waistcoat might once have overlapped a strained but as yet coherent waistband. The cut of these garments, by length of coat-tail and voluminous leg, proudly asserted a bay origin. His small feet were squeezed into tight, short boots with high, raking heels. A round face, with small full mouth, non-committal nose, and black protruding eyes, showed no more sign of the ideal temperament than did the broad daub upon his square yard of canvas. "'Going to Copples's?' inquired my friend." That was my destination, and I answered yes. That's me, he ejaculated, right over there, down below those two oaks. Ever there? No. My studio's there now, giving impressive accent to the word. All the while these few words were passing, he scrutinized me with unconcealed curiosity, puzzled as well he might be by my dress and equipment. Finally, after I had tied Kawea to a tree and seated myself by the easel, and after he had absently rubbed some raw sienna into his little store of white, he softly ventured, "'Was you looking out a ditch?' "'No,' I replied. He neatly rubbed up the white and sienna with his blender, unconsciously adding a dash of Veronese green gazed at my leggings, then at the barometer, and again meeting my eye with a look as if he feared I might be a disguised duke, said in slow tone, with hyphens of silence between each two syllables, giving to his language all the dignity of an unabridged Webster. I would take pleasure in stating that my name is Hank G. Smith, artist. And seeing me smile, he relaxed a little and giving the blender another vigorous twist, added, I would request yours. Mr. Smith, having learned my name, occupation, and that my home was on the Hudson, near New York, quickly assumed a familiar me and you old fell tone, and rattled on merrily about his winter in New York, spent in going through the academy a period of deep moment to one who before that painted only wagons for his livelihood. Stoning away canvas, stool, and easel in a deserted cabin close by, he rejoined me, and leading Kawea by his lariat, I walked beside Smith down the trail toward Copples's. He talked freely, and, as if composing his own biography, beginning, California born and mountain raised, 
his nature soon drove him into a painter's career then he reverted fondly to new york and his experience there oh no he mused in pleasant irony he never spread his napkin over his legs and partook french victuals up to old delmonico's twasn't h g which took her to the theatre in a sort of stage aside to me he added she was a model stood for them sculptors you know perfectly virtuous and built from the ground up then as if the words failed him made an expressive gesture with both hands over his shirt bosom to indicate the topography of her figure and sliding them down sharply against his waistband he added anatomical torso mr smith found relief in meeting one so near himself as he conceived me to be in habit and experience the long pent-up emotions and ambitions of his life found ready utterance and a willing listener i learned that his aim was to become a characteristically california painter with special designs for making himself famous as the delineator of mule trains and ox wagons to be as he expressed it the pacific slope bonheur there he said is old eastman johnson he's made the rifle on barns and that everlasting girl with the ears of corn but it ain't life it ain't got the real git-up if you want to see the thing just look at a jerome his arab folks and egyptian dancing girls they ain't assuming a pleasant expression and looking at spots while their likenesses is took h d will discount eastman yet he avowed his great admiration of church which with a little leaning toward mr gifford seemed his only hearty approval it's all bierstadt and bierstadt and bierstadt nowadays what has he done but twist and skew and distort and discolor and belittle and be pretty this whole doggone country why his mountains are too high and too slim they'd bow over in one of our fall winds they'd blow over in one of our fall winds i've herded colts two summers in yosemite and honest now when i stood right up in front of his picture i didn't know it he hasn't what old ruskin calls for by this time the station buildings were in sight and far down the canyon winding in even grade round spur after spur outlined by a low clinging cloud of red dust we could see the great sierra mule train that industrial gulf stream flowing from california plains over into arid nevada carrying thither materials for life and luxury and a vast perpetual caravan of heavy wagons drawn by teams of from eight to fourteen mules all the supplies of many cities and villages were hauled across the sahara at an immense cost and with such skill of driving and generalship of mules as the world has never seen before our trail descended toward the grade quickly bringing us to the high bank immediately overlooking the trains a few rods below the group of station buildings i had by this time learned that copples the former station proprietor 
had suffered amputation of the leg three times, receiving from the roadmen, in consequence, the name of Cut-Off, and that, while his doctors disagreed as to whether they had better try a fourth, the kindly hand of death had spared him that pain, and Mrs. Copples an added extortion in the bill. The dying Cut-Off had made his wife promise she would stay by and carry on the station until all his debts, which were many and heavy, should be paid, and then do as she chose. The poor woman, a New Englander of some refinement, lingered, sadly fulfilling her task, though longing for liberty. When Smith came to speak of Sarah Jane, her niece, a new light kindled in my friend's eye. "'You never saw Sarah Jane?' he inquired. I shook my head. He went on to tell me that he was living in hope of making her Mrs. H.G., but that the barkeeper also indulged a hope, and as this important functionary was a man of ready cash and of derringers and few words, it became a delicate matter to avow open rivalry. But it was evident my friend's star was ascendant, and learning that he considered himself to possess the dead wood and to have gated the barkeeper, I was more than amused, even comforted. It was pleasure to sit there leaning against a vigorous old oak while Smith opened his heart to me in easy confidence, and with quick eye watching the passing mules penciled in a little sketch-book, a leg, a head, or such portions of body and harness as seemed to him useful for future works. These are notes, he said, and I've pretty much made up my mind to paint my great picture on a gee pole. I'll scumble in a sunset effect, lighting up the dust and striking across the backs of team and driver, and I'll paint a come up there dinner you look on the old teamster's face, and the mules will be just a humpin' their little selves and layin' down to work like they'd expire. And the wagon, don't you see what fine color material there is in the heavy load and canvas top with sunlight and shadow in the folds? And that's what's the matter with H.G. Smith. Orders, sir. Orders. That's what I'll get then. And I'll take my little old Sarah Jane and light out for New York. And you'll see Smith on a studio doorplate. And folks will say, fine feeling for nature has Smith. I let this singular man speak for himself in his own vernacular, pruning nothing of its idiom or slang, as you shall choose to call it. In this faithful transcript there are words I could have wished to expunge, but they are his, not mine, and illustrate his mental construction. The breath of most Californians is as unconsciously charged with slang as in Italians of garlic, and the two, after all, have much the same function. You touch the bowl or your language, but should never let either be fairly recognized in salad or conversation. But Smith's English was the well undefiled, when compared with what I every moment heard from the current of teamsters, which set constantly by us in the direction of Copples's Close in front came a huge wagon piled high with cases of freight and drawn along by a team of twelve mules 
whose heavy breathing and drenched skins showed them hard-worked and well tired out the driver looked anxiously ahead at a soft spot in the road and on at the station as if calculating whether his team had courage left to haul through he called kindly to them cracked his black snake whip and altogether they strained bravely on the great van rocked settled a little on the near side and stuck fast with a look of despair the driver got off and laid the lash freely among his team they jumped and jerked frantically tangled themselves up and at last all sulked and became stubbornly immovable meanwhile a mile of teams behind unable to pass on the narrow grade came to an unwilling halt about five wagons back i noticed a tall pike dressed in checked shirt and pantaloons tucked into jack-boots a soft felt hat worn on the back of his head displayed long locks of flaxen hair which hung freely about a florid pink countenance noticeable for its pair of violent light blue eyes and facial angle rendered cute by a sharp long nose this fellow watched the stoppage with impatience and at last what was more than he could bear walked up by the other teams with a look of wrath absolutely devilish one would have expected him to blow up with rage yet with all his gait and manner were cool and soft in the extreme in a bland almost tender voice he said to the unfortunate driver my friend perhaps i can help you and his gentle way of disentangling and patting the leaders as he headed them round in the right direction would have given him a high office under mr berg he leisurely examined the embedded wheel and cast an eye along the road ahead he then began in rather excited manner to swear pouring it out louder and more profane till he utterly eclipsed the most horrid blasphemies i ever heard piling them up thicker and more fiendish till it seemed as if the very earth must open and engulf him i noticed one mule after another give a little squat bringing their breasts hard against the collars and straining traces till only one old mule with ears back and dangling chain still held out the pike walked up and yelled one gigantic oath her ears sprang forward she squatted in terror and the iron links grated under her strain he then stepped back and took the rein every trembling mule looking out of the corner of its eye and listening at qui vive with a peculiar air of deliberation and of childlike simplicity he said in everyday tones come up there mules one quick strain a slight rumble and the wagon rolled on to copples's smith and i followed and as we neared the house he punched me familiarly and said as a brown petticoat disappeared in the station door there's sarah jane when i see that girl i feel like i'd reach out and gather her in then clasping her imaginary form as if she was about to dance with him he executed a couple of waltz turns softly intimating that's what's the matter with h g 
Kawea being stabled, we betook ourselves to the office, which was, of course, bar-room as well. As I entered, the unfortunate teamster was about paying his liquid compliment to the florid pike. Their glasses were filled. My respects, said the little driver. The whiskey became lost to view and went eroding its way through the dust these poor fellows had swallowed. He added, Well, Billy, you can swear. Swear? repeated the pike in a tone of incredulous questioning. Me swear? As if the compliment were greater than his modest desert. No, I can't blaspheme worth a cuss. You'd just ought to hear Pete Green. He can exhort the impenitent mule. I've known a ten-mule team to renounce the flesh and haul thirty-one thousand through a foot of clay mud under one of his outpourings. As a hotel, Copples's is on the Mongolian plan, which means that dining-room and kitchen are given over to the mercies, never very tender, of Chinamen. Not such Chinamen as learned the art of pig-roasting that they might be served up by Elia, but the average John, and a sadly low average that John is. I grant him a certain general air of thrift, admitting, too, that his lack of sobriety never makes itself apparent in loud Celtic brawl. But he is, when all is said, and in spite of timid and fawning obedience, a very poor servant. Now and then at one's friend's houses it has happened to me that I dined upon artistic Chinese cookery, and all they who came home from living in China smacked their lips over the relishing cuisine. I wish they had sat down that day at Copples's. No, on second thought I would spare them. John may go peacefully to North Adams and make shoes for us, but I shall not solve the awful domestic problem of bringing him into my kitchen, certainly so long as Howells, Mrs. Johnson, lives, or even while I can get an Irish lady to torment me and offer the hospitality of my home to her cousins. After the warning bell, fifty or sixty teamsters inserted their dusty heads in buckets of water, turned their once white necked handkerchiefs inside out, producing a sudden effect of clean linen, and made use of the two mournful wrecks of combs which hung on strings at either side of Copples's mirror. Many went to the bar and partook of a dust-cutter. There was then such clearing of throats and such loud and prolonged blowing of noses as may not often be heard upon this globe. In the calm which ensued, conversation sprang up on lead harness, the Stockton wagon that had went off the grade, with here and there a sentiment called out by two framed lithographic bells, who in great richness of colour and scantiness of raiment flanked the bar mirror, a dazzling reflector chiefly destined to portray the barkeeper's back hair, which work of art involved much affectionate labour. A second bell and rolling away of doors revealed a long dining-room with three parallel tables, cleanly set and watched over by Chinamen, whose fresh white clothes and bright olive-buff skin 
made a contrast of color which was always chief among my yearnings for the nile while i loitered in the background every seat was taken and i found myself with a few dilatory teamsters destined to await a second table the dinner-room communicated with the kitchen beyond by means of two square apertures cut in the partition wall through these portholes a glare of red light poured except when the square framed a chinese cook's head or discharged hundreds of little dishes the teamsters sat down in patience a few of the more elegant sort cleaned their nails with the three tine forks others picked their teeth with them and nearly all spread with their implement small specimens from the dishes before them securing a pickle or a square inch of pie or even that luxury a dried apple a few on tilted back chairs drummed upon the bottom of their plates the latest tune of the road when fairly under way the scene became active and animated beyond belief waiters balancing upon their arms twenty or thirty plates hurried along and shot them dexterously over the teamsters heads with crash and spatter beans swimming in fat meats slimed with pale ropy gravy and over everything a faint mongol odour the flavour of moral degeneracy and of a disintegrating race sharks and wolves may no longer be figured as types of prandial haste my friends the teamsters stuffed and swallowed with a rapidity which was alarming but for the dexterity they showed and which could only have come of long practice in fifteen minutes the room was empty and those fellows who were not feeding grain to their mules lighted cigars and lingered round the bar just then my artist rushed in seized me by the arm and said in my ear we'll have our supper over to mrs copples's oh no i guess not sarah jane arms peeled cooking up stuff old woman gone into the milk-room with a skimmer he then added that if i wanted to see what i had been spared i might follow him we went round an angle of the building and came upon a high bank where through wide-open windows i could look into the chinese kitchen by this time the second table of teamsters were under way and the waiters yelled their orders through to the three cooks this large unpainted kitchen was lighted up by kerosene lamps through clouds of smoke and steam dodged and sprang the cooks dripping with perspiration and grease grabbing a stake in the hand and slapping it down on the gridiron slipping and sliding around on the damp floor dropping a card of biscuits and picking them up again in their fists which were garnished by the whole bill of fare the red papers with chinese inscriptions and little joss sticks here and there pasted upon each wall the spry devils themselves and that faint sickening odour of china which pervaded the room combined to produce a sense of deep sober gratitude that i had not risked their fare now demanded smith you see that there little white building yonder i did he struck a contemplative position leaned against the house 
extending one hand after the manner of the minstrel sentimentalist and softly chanted tis oh tis the cottage of me love and there's where they're getting up a nice little supper as can be found on this road or any other let's go over so we strolled across an open space where were two giant pines towering sombre against the twilight a little mountain brooklet and a few quiet cows stop said smith leaning his back against a pine and encircling my neck affectionately with an arm i told you as regards sarah jane how my feelings stand well now you just bet she's on the reciprocate when i told old woman copples i'd like to invite you over sarah jane she passed me in the doorway and said she glad to see your friends then sotto voce for we were very near he sang again tis oh tis the cottage of me love and c k he continued familiarly you're a judge of women chucking his knuckles into my ribs whereat i jumped when he added there i knew you was well sarah jane is a darn magnificent female number three boot just the height of me venus de couples i call her and would make the most touching artist's wife in this planet if i design to paint a head or foot or an arm get my little old sarah jane to peel the particular charm and just whack her in on the canvas we passed in through low doors turned from a small dark entry into the family sitting-room and were alone there in presence of a cheery log fire which good-naturedly bade us welcome crackling freely and tossing its sparks out upon floor of pine and coyote skin rug a few old framed prints hung upon dark walls their faces looking serenely down upon the scanty old-fashioned furniture and windows full of flowering plants a low cushioned chair not long since vacated was drawn close by the center table whereon were a lamp and a large open bible with a pair of silver-bowed spectacles lying upon its lighted page smith made a gesture of silence toward the door touched the bible and whispered here's where old woman copples lives and it is a good thing i read it aloud to her evenings and i can just feel the high local lights of it i'll fetch h g yet at this juncture the door opened a pale thin elderly woman entered and with tired smile greeted me while her hard labor-stiffened needle-roughened hand was in mine I looked into her face and felt something it may be it must be but little yet something of the sorrow of her life that of a woman large in sympathy deep in faith eternal in constancy thrown away on a rough worthless fellow all things she hoped for had failed her the tenderness which never came the hopes years ago in ashes the whole world of her yearnings long buried leaving only the duty of living and the hope of heaven 
as she sat down took up her spectacles and knitting and closed the bible she began pleasantly to talk to us of the warm bright autumn nights of smith's work and then of my own profession and of her niece sarah jane her genuinely sweet spirit and natively gentle manner were very beautiful and far overbalanced all traces of rustic birth and mountain life oh that unquenchable christian fire how pure the gold of its result it needs no practised elegance no social greatness for its success only the warm human heart and out of it shall come a sacred calm and gentleness such as no power no wealth no culture may ever hope to win no words of mine would outline the beauty of that plain weary old woman the sad sweet patience of those grey eyes nor the spirit of overflowing goodness which cheered and enlivened the half-hour we spent there h g might perhaps be pardoned for showing an alacrity when the door again opened and sarah jane rolled i might almost say trundled in and was introduced to me sarah jane was an essentially californian product as much so as one of those vast potatoes or massive pears she had a suggestion of state fare in the fullness of her physique yet withal was pretty and modest if i could have rid myself of a fear that her buttons might sooner or later burst off and go singing by my ear i think i might have felt as h g did that she was a magnificent female with her smooth brilliant skin and ropes of soft brown hair h g in presence of the ladies lost something of his original flavour and rose into studied elegance greatly to the comfort of sarah whose glow of pride as his talk ran on came without show of restraint the supper was delicious but sarah was quiet quiet to h g and to me until after tea when the old lady said you young folks will have to excuse me this evening and withdrew to her chamber more logs were then piled on the sitting-room hearth and we three gathered in a semicircle presently h g took the poker and twisted it about among coals and ashes prying up the oak sticks as he announced in a measured studied way an artist's wife that is he explained an academician's wife otter well she otter sabby the beautiful and take her regular aesthetics and then again he continued in explanatory tone she ought to know how to keep a hotel darn if she hadn't for it's rough like first off before a feller gets his name up but then when he does though she's got a salubrious old time of it it's touch a little bell he pressed the andiron top to show us how the thing was done and brooks the morning paper open your regular herald art notes another of h g smith's tender works entitled off the grade so full of outdoors and subtle feeling of nature is now on exhibition at goopel's look down a little further italian opera between the acts all eyes turned to the disengue mrs h g smith who looked 
then turning to me and waving his hand at sarah jane i leave it to you if she don't sarah jane assumed the pleasing color of the sugar beet without seeming inwardly unhappy it's only a question of time with h g continued my friend art is long you know darn long and it may be a year before i paint my great picture but after that smith works in lead harness he used the poker freely and more and more his flow of hopes turned a shade of sentiment to sarah jane who smiled broader and broader showing teeth of healthy whiteness at last i withdrew and sought my room which was h g's also and his studio i had gone with a candle round the walls whereon were tacked studies and sketches finding here and there a bit of real merit among the profusion of trash when the door burst open and my friend entered kicked off his boots and trousers and walked up and down at a sort of quadrille step singing yet it's the cottage of me love you bet it's the cottage of me love and what's more h g has just had his genteel good-night kiss and when and where is the good old barkeep i checked his exuberance as best i might knowing full well that the quiet and elegant dispenser of neat and mixed beverages hearing this inquiry would put in an appearance in person and offer a few remarks designed to provoke ill-feeling so i at last got smith in bed and the lamp out all was quiet for a few moments and when i had almost gotten asleep i heard my roommate in low tones say to himself married by the reverend gospel our talented california artist mr h g smith to miss sarah jane copples no cards a pause and then with more gentle utterance and that's what's the matter with h g slowly from this atmosphere of art i passed away into the tranquil land of dreams from mountaineering in the sierra nevada by clarence king copyright eighteen seventy one by james r osgood and company copyright nineteen o two by charles scribner sons the theatre francais by henry james monsieur francis sarcy the dramatic critic of the paris temps and the gentleman who of the whole journalistic fraternity holds the fortune of a play in the hollow of his hand has been publishing during the last year a series of biographical notices of the chief actors and actresses of the first theatre in the world comédienne et comédienne la comédie française such is the title of this publication which appears in monthly numbers of libraire des bibliophiles and is ornamented on each occasion with a very prettily etched portrait by monsieur gaucherel of the artist to whom the number is devoted by lovers of the stage in general and of the theatre francais in particular the series will be found most interesting and i welcome a pretext for saying a few words about an institution which if such language be not hyperbolical i passionately admire 
i must add that the portrait is incomplete though for the present occasion it is more than sufficient the list of m sancy's biographies is not yet filled up three or four those of madame faver and of mademoiselle fabre and Dolanay are still wanting nine numbers however have appeared the first being entitled la maison de moliere and devoted to a general account of the great theatre and the others treating of its principal societaires and pensionnaires in the following order regnier gaul sophie croisette sarah bernhard coquelin madeleine brohan bresson madame Plessy. this order by the way is purely accidental it is not that of age or of merit it is always entertaining to encounter Monsieur Francis Saucy, and the reader who, during a Paris winter, has been in the habit of a Sunday evening of unfolding his tente, immediately after unfolding his napkin, and glancing down first of all to see what this sturdy feuilletoniste has found to his hand. Such a reader will find him in great force in the pages before us. It is true that, though I myself confess to being such a reader, there are moments when I grow rather weary of M. Sancy, who has in an eminent degree both the virtues and defects which attach to the great French characteristic, the habit of taking terribly au sérieux anything that you may set about doing, of this habit of abounding in one's own sense, of expatiating, elaborating, reiterating, refining, as if for the hour the fate of mankind were bound up with one's particular topic. M. Saucy is a capital and at times an almost comical representative. He talks about the theatre once a week as if, honestly, between himself and his reader, the theatre were the only thing in this frivolous world that is worth seriously talking about. He has a religious respect for his theme, and he holds that if a thing is to be done at all, it must be done in detail as well as in the gross. It is to this serious way of taking the matter, to his thoroughly businesslike and professional attitude, to his unwearying attention to detail, that the credit of the temps owes his enviable influence and the weight of his words add to this that he is sternly incorruptible he has his admirations but they are honest and discriminating and whom he loveth he very often chasteneth he is not ashamed to commend mademoiselle x who has only had a curtsy to make if her curtsy has been the ideal curtsy of the situation and he is not afraid to overhaul monsieur a who has delivered the tirade of the play if monsieur a has failed to hit the mark of course his judgment is good when i have had occasion to measure it i have usually found it excellent he has the scenic sense the theatrical eye he knows at a glance what will do and what will not do he is shrewd and sagacious and almost tiresomely in earnest and this is his principal brilliancy he is homely, familiar, and colloquial. He leans his elbows on his desk 
and does up his weekly budget into a parcel the reverse of coquettish you can fancy him a grocer retailing tapioca and hominy full weight for the price his style seems a sort of integument of brown paper but the fact remains that if monsieur sarcy praises a play the play has a run and that if monsieur sarcy says it will not do it does not do at all if monsieur sarcy devotes an encouraging line and a half to a young actress mademoiselle is immediately lancée she has a career if he bestows a quiet bravo on an obscure comedian the gentleman may forthwith renew his engagement when you make and unmake fortunes at this rate what matters it whether you have a little elegance the more or the less elegance is for monsieur paul de la saint victor who does the theatres in the miniature and who though he writes a style only a trifle less pictorial than that of theophile gautier himself has never to the best of my belief brought clouds or sunshine to any playhouse i may add to finish with monsieur sarcy that he contributes a daily political article generally devoted to watching and showing up the game of the clerical party to edmond about the journal the nineteenth siècle that he gives a weekly conference on current literature that he confers also on those excellent sunday morning performances now so common in the french theatres during which examples of the classic repertory are presented accompanied by a light lecture upon the history and character of the play as the commentator on these occasions m sarcy is in great demand and he officiates sometimes in small provincial towns lastly frequent playgoers in paris observe that the very slenderest novelty is sufficient to ensure at a theatre the very considerable physical presence of the conscientious critic of the temple if he were remarkable for nothing else he would be remarkable for the fortitude with which he exposes himself to the pestiferous climate of the parisian temples of the drama for these agreeable notices m sarcy appears to have mended his pen and to have given a fillip to his fancy they are gracefully and often lightly turned occasionally even the author grazes the epigrammatic they deal as is proper with the artistic and not with the private physiognomy of the ladies and gentlemen whom they commemorate and though they occasionally allude to what the french call intimate matters they contain no satisfaction for the lovers of scandal the theatre francais in the face it presents to the world is an austere and venerable establishment and a frivolous tone about its affairs would be almost as much out of keeping as if applied to the academie herself m sarcy touches upon the organization of the theatre and gives some account of the different phases through which it has passed during these latter years its chief functionary is a general administrator or director appointed by the state which enjoys this right in virtue of the considerable subsidy which it pays to the house a subsidy amounting if i am not mistaken 
Monsieur Sarcy does not mention the sum, to 250,000 francs. The director, however, is not an absolute, but a constitutional ruler, for he shares his powers with the society itself, which has always had a large deliberate voice. Whence it may be asked, does the society derive its light and its inspiration from the past, from precedent, from tradition, from the great unwritten body of laws which no one has in his keeping, but many have in their memory and all in their respect? The principles on which the Théâtre Français rests are a good deal like the common law of England, a vaguely and inconveniently registered mass of regulations which time and occasion have welded together and from which the recurring occasion can usually manage to extract the rightful precedent napoleon i who had a finger in every pie in his dominion found time during his brief and disastrous occupation of moscow to send down a decree remodeling and regulating the constitution of the theatre this document has long been a dead letter and the society abides by its older traditions the traditions of the comédie francaise that is the sovereign word and that is the charm of the place the charm that one never ceases to feel however often one may sit beneath the classic dusky dome one feels this charm with peculiar intensity as a newly arrived foreigner the theatre francais has had the good fortune to be able to allow its traditions to accumulate they have been preserved transmitted respected cherished until at last they form the very atmosphere the vital air of the establishment a stranger feels their superior influence the first time he sees the great curtain go up he feels that he is in a theatre that is not as other theatres are it is not only better it is different it has a peculiar perfection something consecrated historical academic this impression is delicious and he watches the performance in a sort of tranquil ecstasy never has he seen anything so smooth and harmonious so artistic and complete he has heard all his life of attention to detail and now for the first time he sees something that deserves the name he sees dramatic effort refined to a point with which the english stage is unacquainted he sees that there are no limits to possible finish and that so trivial an act as taking a letter from a servant or placing one's hat on a chair may be made a suggestive and interesting incident he sees these things and a great many more besides but at first he does not analyze them he gives himself up to sympathetic contemplation he is in an ideal and exemplary world a world that has managed to attain all the felicities that the world we live in misses the people do the things we should like to do they are gifted as we should like to be they have mastered the accomplishments that we have had to give up the women are not all beautiful decidedly not indeed but they are graceful agreeable sympathetic ladylike they have the best manners possible and they are delightfully well dressed they have charming musical voices and they speak with irreproachable purity and sweetness they walk with the most elegant grace and when they sit it is a pleasure to see their attitudes they go out and come in 
they pass across the stage they talk and laugh and cry they deliver long tirades or remain statuesquely mute they are tender or tragic they are comic or conventional and through it all you never observe an awkwardness a roughness an accident a crude spot a false note as for the men they are not handsome either it must be confessed indeed that at the present hour manly beauty is but scantily represented in the theatre francais bresson i believe used to be thought handsome but bresson has retired and among the gentlemen of the troupe i can think of no one but monsieur mounet sully who may be positively commended for his fine person but monsieur mounet sully is from a scenic point of view an adonis of the first magnitude to be handsome however is for an actor one of the last necessities and these gentlemen are mostly handsome enough they look perfectly what they are intended to look and in cases where it is proposed that they shall seem handsome they usually succeed they are as well mannered and as well dressed as their fairer comrades and their voices are no less agreeable and effective they represent gentlemen and they produce the illusion in this endeavour they deserve even greater credit than the actresses for in modern comedy of which the repertory of the theatre francais is largely composed they have nothing in the way of costume to help to carry it off half a dozen ugly men in the periodic coat and trousers and stove-pipe hat with blue chins and false moustaches strutting before the footlights and pretending to be interesting romantic pathetic heroic certainly play a perilous game at every turn they suggest prosaic things and the usual liability to awkwardness is meantime increased a thousandfold but the comedians of the theatre francais are never awkward and when it is necessary they solve triumphantly the problem of being at once realistic to the eye and romantic to the imagination i am speaking always of one's first impression of them there are spots on the sun and you discover after a while that there are little irregularities at the theatre francais but the acting is so incomparably better than any that you have seen that criticism for a long time is content to lie dormant i shall never forget how at first i was under the charm i liked the very incommodities of the place i am not sure that i did not find a certain mystic salubrity in the bad ventilation the theatre francais it is known gives you a good deal for your money the performance which rarely ends before midnight and sometimes transgresses it frequently begins by seven o'clock the first hour or two is occupied by secondary performers but not for the world at this time would i have missed the first rising of the curtain no dinner could be too hastily swallowed to enable me to see for instance madame natale in octave fouet's charming little comedy of le village madame natale was a plain stout old woman who did the mothers and aunts and elderly wives i use the past tense because she retired from the stage a year ago leaving a most conspicuous vacancy she was an admirable actress and a perfect 
mistress of laughter and tears in le village she played an old provincial bourgeoisie whose husband takes it into his head one winter night to start on the tour of europe with a roving bachelor friend who has dropped down on him at supper-time after the lapse of years and has gossiped him into momentary discontent with his fireside existence my pleasure was in madame nathalie's figure when she came in dressed to go out to vespers across the place the two foolish old cronies are over their wine talking of the beauty of the women on the ionian coast you hear the church bell in the distance it was the quiet felicity of the old lady's dress that used to charm me the comédie française was in every fold of it she wore a large black silk mantilla of a peculiar cut which looked as if she had just taken it tenderly out of some old wardrobe where it lay folded in lavender and a large dark bonnet adorned with handsome black silk loops and bows her big pale face had a softly frightened look and in her hand she carried her neatly kept breviary the extreme suggestiveness and yet the taste and temperance of this costume seemed to me inimitable the bonnet alone with its handsome decent virtuous bows was worth coming to see it expressed all the rest and you saw the excellent pious woman go pick her steps churchward among the puddles while jeanette the cook in a high white cap marched before her in sabots with a lantern such matters are trifles but they are representative trifles and they are not the only ones that i remember it used to please me when i had squeezed into my stall the stalls at the francais are extremely uncomfortable to remember of how great a history the large dim salier around me could boast how many great things had happened there how the air was thick with associations even if i had never seen rachel it was something of a consolation to think that those very footlights had illumined her finest moments and that the echoes of her mighty voice were sleeping in that dingy dome from this to musing upon the traditions of the place of which i spoke just now was of course but a step how were they kept by whom where who trims the undying lamp and guards the accumulated treasure i never found out by sitting in the stalls and very soon i ceased to care to know one may be very fond of the stage and yet care little for the green room just as one may be very fond of pictures and books and yet be no frequenter of studios and authors dens they might pass on the torch as they would behind the scenes so long as during my time they did not let it drop i made up my mind to be satisfied and that one could depend upon their not letting it drop became a part of the customary comfort of parisian life it became certain that the traditions were not mere catchwords but a most beneficent reality going to the other parisian theatres helps you to believe in them unless you are a voracious theatre-goer you give the others up you find they do not pay the francais does for you all that they do and so much more besides there are two possible exceptions 
the gymnase and the palais royal the gymnase since the death of mademoiselle de clay has been under a heavy cloud but occasionally when a month's sunshine rests upon it there is a savour of excellence in the performance but you feel that you are still within the realm of accident the delightful security of the rue de richelieu is wanting the young lover is liable to be common and the beautifully dressed heroine to have an unpleasant voice the palais royal has always been in its way very perfect but its way admits of great imperfection the actresses are classically bad though usually pretty and the actors are much addicted to taking liberties in broad comedy nevertheless two or three of the latter are not to be surpassed and counting out the women there is usually something masterly in a palais royal performance in its own line it has what is called style and it therefore walks at a distance in the footsteps of the francais the odeon has never seemed to me in any degree a rival of the theatre francais though it is a smaller copy of that establishment it receives a subsidy from the state and is obliged by its contract to play the classic repertory one night in the week it is on these nights listening to moliere or marivaux that you may best measure the superiority of the greater theatre i have seen actors at the odeon in the classic repertory imperfect in their texts a monstrously insupposable case at the comedie francaise the function of the odeon is to operate as a pepiniere or nursery for its elder to try young talents shape them make them flexible and then hand them over to the upper house the more especial nursery of the francais however is the conservatoire dramatique an institution dependent upon the state through the ministry of the fine arts whose budget is charged with the remuneration of its professors pupils graduating from the conservatoire with a prize have ipso facto the right to debuter at the theatre francais which retains them or lets them go according to its discretion most of the first subjects of the francais have done their two years work at the conservatoire and monsieur sarcy holds that an actor who has not had that fundamental training which is only to be acquired there never obtains a complete mastery of the resources nevertheless some of the best actors of the day have owed nothing to the conservatoire bresson for instance and aimé de clay the latter of whom indeed never arrived at the francais moliere and balzac were not of the academy and so mademoiselle de clay the first actress after rachel died without acquiring the privilege which m sarcy says is the day-dream of all young theatrical women that are printing on their visiting cards after their name de la comédie française end of section fifteen